Well, we come to the end of a three-week series today, Worship, Community, Mission. A week on each of these words, these words that we talk about around here, uh, under the umbrella of spreading God's glory broader and deeper, we're doing it through these three things, worship, community, mission. Or we could put it another way and say, basically every little thing we do, 20 plus ministries or so represented under the umbrella of our church, and all those things can fall under the, the categories of worship, community, and mission. So we shouldn't just mention those words from time to time, you know, rally around those words from time to time, but we should discuss and study, think on these words when we get the chance to. So today, what do we mean by mission when we say that Desert Springs Church is about worship, community, mission? Well, turn to Acts chapter 1 for something of an answer there. We'll read the first eight verses and sort of camp out on the last of those eight verses. Verse 8. Here's what Luke writes. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, referring to the gospel, according to Luke. Until that day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. What are witnesses? It's kind of like a witness in a courtroom. Someone called to come in and testify. A witness is a teller. One who tells. And outside the courtroom word picture, we can think of a witness as one who proclaims, one who announces, one who's a messenger with a message. And hopefully you can hear what I'm emphasizing there with these different words. I'm emphasizing speech, communication, words. We witness through language. That's the mission, to spread God's glory in the world, in that glory realized in what we call the gospel, the good news. You see, there's no real and lasting tasting of his glory in this world without the gospel. That's what awakens us truly to his glory in this world and restores us to relationship with him. And so Christians are gospel-ers, if we can put it into a verb. They're people of the gospel, shaped by the gospel, and proclaiming the gospel. What, what is the gospel? It's the announcement of the good news that Jesus died for sinners. That's the content of the good news. Jesus died for sinners. Or 
We could say Jesus came to rescue us from ourselves and from our sin and from the judgment to come by living the life that we should have lived and by dying the death that we should have died. Or we could say the benefits of his death in the gospel are not earned but received. That's why it's good news. It's a gift. In other words, our witness must be about him, his work, who he is, what he came to do, what he says, what he offers. Our witness is not so much about us, but about him. You see, sometimes when we talk about testimonies, we talk about our story. And you see sometimes in Scripture people giving their story of when they were converted, when they faced Jesus, in the case of Saul, face to face, and had a new heart to believe and be changed. Paul gives his story a couple different times in the book of Acts. But there are some times when the word testimony or testifying, those kinds of words are used, and it's talking about not testifying about ourselves or even our changed lives, but testifying about Jesus, who he is, what he said, and what he came to do. We should talk about lives, what they mean, what they mean for the mission. Maybe you'd ask, don't our lives change lives? Our stories also witness? Well, not strictly so. Transformed lives, difference that Jesus makes, confirms the gospel. It confirms the message, and that's not unimportant. I mean, you find things like Philippians 2, where Paul says, Don't complain, so that you'll be without blemish in a dark world, and you'll shine as lights. In other words, one thing sinful hearts do is complain. And I want you to not complain, not murmur, so that you stand out. You look different. That's important. And yet no one has ever observed a non-complaining person and thought, you know what? I bet Jesus died in a cross somewhere. I bet he died in the place of my sins. I bet if I only trust him and believe that I would be forgiven and I'd have some help with my complaints. No. You see, transformed lives are important, but they can't save. No one sees our good works and then is redeemed by those good works. We're saved by Jesus' good works. And that's what we should first and foremost highlight. Our lives only being the complement or the shadow of the reality of Christ and his work. Think of it this way. Maybe it's like marriage. The relationship between our lives, those changed lives that come inevitably with coming to Christ, and the message that people need to hear in order to believe and be saved. Something like the difference between observing a marriage and knowing what covenant vows are. Suppose I have an unsaved friend, an unmarried friend, a romantically challenged friend, and he comes over to my house for dinner and he observes my wife and I Loving each other, caring for each other, being happy together, exchanging words of love and and affection. He sees us sharing food and family and home, and the warmth is beautiful, he thinks. Of course, he's not seeing 
sometimes what's behind closed doors. But, but he's seeing what's genuinely, I think, good and right. We're not faking it. But he may not necessarily know anything about the process of courtship and thoughtful, theological wedding vows and the work of getting to a relationship where there is warmth and love and joy exchanged. You see, watching our marriage may validate marriage as an institution for him. It may even beautify marriage in his eyes and make it attractive for him. But it doesn't necessarily help him understand how we got there and what undergirds it all. So similarly, the gospel undergirds everything we do as Christians. And we should look to display that to unbelievers in hundreds of ways. Like not complaining. But unbelievers have to be told how we got here. They have to be told the gospel or they cannot be saved no matter how much integrity and joy and love you might show. Let me tell you five things that I see about mission that we can draw from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The first, the people of the mission. The people. The people of the mission is us. It's you and me if you're in Christ. It's the church. It's those who are following Jesus. Every disciple is to follow Jesus. That's what the word disciple means. We're to do what he did. We're not to be like Jesus in every single way. We can, right? We're not supposed to be able to know people's thoughts like Jesus seemed to be able to do at times. But in the way of befriending sinners and proclaiming hope to them, we follow Jesus' model. You see that transition in Luke. If you remember back to our study of Luke many months ago, we got to a point where eventually Jesus sent the the, the first, uh, first dozen or so disciples out, and then eventually it was 70 or 72 that he sent out. And it's an extension of his ministry, right? They're doing what he has been doing. He tells them to go and tell people, the kingdom has come near you. And when they won't listen, he says, no, tell them again, the kingdom has certainly come near you. Well, not just those first 12 and not just the 70 that followed, but now everyone who's in Christ is sent. Everyone is to be a witness. This mission is not just for missionaries. It's not just for pastors. It's not, those just, for, not just for those with a special gift of evangelism or those who have been thoroughly trained in how to do it, what to say, and How to answer objections. In fact, I think it's curious. Acts 1.8 says, you will be witnesses. I wonder if that doesn't imply we are all witnesses. Some of us are just silent ones. We're all witnesses, right? He's already said the world can look at you And it should know something about what it means to be a Christian. Should know something about what it means to be in fellowship with me. Should know something about what it means to be loving toward others. Kind of a scary reality to think you will 
be my witnesses. Just some of us are implying the wrong thing because we're quiet in our witness. This whole thing of witness, mission, gospel-ing, good newsing is no small part of his plan, no small part of the New Testament. All four gospels end with a, what do we call it? A great commission. None of them are the same. Which means that Jesus spent his last days going around and giving slightly different versions of the same commission. He repeated it. In different contexts, he said it. He said it again. He said it in a slightly different way. Every gospel account gives us a different version of Jesus saying, go into all the world and make disciples. Go and proclaim. Go and tell. We are the people of the mission. We've been saved for this purpose. 1 Peter 2.9. We saw it a couple of weeks ago. There Peter says we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. If you've been called out of darkness into light by Christ and you're his, he has called you out of darkness and into light to proclaim, to talk about his excellencies. This is for every Christian. They're the people of the mission. Secondly, we can think about the plan for the mission. The plan? In Acts 1.8, concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. It's starting small and it's getting bigger. Now we're not in Jerusalem, but I think the same truth applies here. We should think in concentric circles about our mission. We all have our own Jerusalem, Albuquerque. Maybe yours is Rio Rancho or the other side of the mountain. But you have a city that's your city. It's your Jerusalem. We all have our own Judea, our own state or country. We all have our own Samaria. Now, this one's a little bit different than the other two before it because... It's not just geography. When Jesus says Samaria here, he also has ethnicity in mind. What he's saying is we're to go to those around us, next to us, close to us, who are different than us. He's giving this mission at first to Jewish believers. And he's saying to them, go to those you don't like. Go to those you have a famously long feud with Go to those lands in which you've previously despised the people. Go. Go there. And then go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That work is still not done. We're still going to the uttermost parts of the earth, like North Africa, where there are people groups that haven't yet come to believe, haven't yet come to know. There are people groups still in this world who haven't heard, that don't yet have a witness, a church, a Bible in their own language, a reproducing leadership. We have to go there. We have to help them. And so at DSC, we could think of our mission in terms of 
For some, it's going. It's going to North Africa. It's going to the uttermost parts of the earth. For those who don't go, the rest will send. They will be senders. They will strategize together about how to go, how to send. They will do training in order to send. They will send, literally. They will fund. They will pray. They will support while those going are over there on the field. But we can also think of the mission at DSC in in spheres that are closer to home. Church planting in Rio Rancho. That's sort of putting a gospel outpost in a place that's still within driving distance, but maybe not convenient driving distance. Here in our own church, we think of local mission happening in part through an ambassador training class. We offer this a couple times a year. The next one starts March 6th. Maybe you've never taken a class on, on how to represent Christ to your friends, to the world. A great class that we offer starting March 6th that you should be a part of then. You think of outreaching ministries like uh, the Christmas store. Like many of the things we just watched on this recap video of the last year. All kinds of get-togethers to bring the gospel, to bring mission, to bring the love of Christ to someone not right here in Desert Springs, but not yet far away that we can't touch them and reach them. And of course, the most common way in which mission should happen here at Desert Springs Church is as these missionaries, you and me, scatter throughout the week. So we leave, and then we go and we live, and we go and we love, and then we talk, we proclaim. We talk about Christ and what he's done for our souls. So I want to focus on that last little bit of the mission here, which I said is a little bit. It's a line in my notes, but, but it represents the broadest sort of scope of mission here at Desert Springs, and it's probably the most neglected. You see, when our missionaries leave Desert Springs to go to North Africa in upcoming years, what will they do that will be so different than what we should do here? The plan is for them to establish a physical therapy clinic One is an accountant, another one's a physical therapist. Start a business for physical therapy, right? I've had some physical therapy done. The person doing the physical therapy always talks to me while physical therapy is happening. What a great opportunity for the gospel, for care, a reason to be in a hostile country. You you need a business. You can't just go and say, I'm a missionary, can I come in? No, you you wouldn't go in. You'd be thrown out. What's different about what they'll do than what you should do? Your job is an opportunity, yes, to to support your family. Yes, to to love your neighbor as yourself. Hopefully your business is something you can be proud of. It, it, It establishes some good, some use out there. It serves people. It it gives something they want and maybe even need. Great. Those are all great things, and yet it's also a mission field for you, isn't it? There's some truth in the reality that 
Every Christian is a missionary. Now let's talk about the relationship between worship, community, and mission. These three words we keep talking about in the recent weeks, now would be a good time to pause and think about how they relate to each other so that we see these aren't, these aren't contained categories where we're in one and never in the other, or right now we're doing one but we're not doing the other. Let's think about the overlap. We saw it last week as we talked about how worship is to be done with community. Worship, in a sense, is community. 1 Peter 2.5, when the living stones come together to be a building, a spiritual building of people, for the temple presence of God, yes, it's an experience of God's presence. Right? He's here. It's worship. But they come together. Right? They get stacked one on another. It's community, togetherness. In fact, we could say community is also for the mission. What I mean is when we get together and we encourage one another in teaching and holiness and purity, sacrifice, care, and love, forgiveness, security, acceptance with each other. What are we doing? As we grow in these things, we are growing in the world's litmus test of the church. Jesus said, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples if you have, what? Love one for another. And and not like the world defines love. No, Jesus elsewhere talked about how we should think about love. It's not like the world defines love. For them, love is, it's kind of deserved. You love the lovely You love those who love you. And in the church, we're called to something more radical. We love those who aren't lovely. We love those who sometimes don't show love to us. We forgive sometimes even when we're not forgiven. The world will know you're my disciples if you have a radical kind of love. So we do community in part as a testimony to the world for the mission. Mark Dever pastor in Washington, D.C., says, how do you see the invisible God? By looking at the local Christian congregation. God intends to display his glory through the local church today as Christians live together in patience, forgiveness, justice, mercy, and love. We reflect God's own character by the character of our congregation's life. Now, we would quickly add, not perfectly so, but hopefully, truthfully so. Hopefully it's true and real that there is some reflection of his character here in our midst. So as we grow in community, we grow in a testimony. We grow in a witness. We grow in a complimenting demonstration of God's goodness in this world. Think of instruction and edification in part for the mission as we grow in what the Bible is and what it says and what it doesn't say, what, what is truth and what, what's falsehood, we grow more confident about what to say, more natural with how we say it, more bold about it. A good friend of mine recently said, you know, for years, I didn't know how to witness. I didn't know what to say. I didn't feel like I knew what to say that would help or work. And 
And now that I know the gospel like I do, now that I've grown a little bit in, in his word and theology, it just comes out, right? There's a freeness and a boldness that it means it just now comes out. And I don't even as much have to think about it. I'm sure this person would say it's still a struggle, but something's changed in part through instruction and edification in what the word says and what the gospel is. Think of worship as mission. What we're doing right now in corporate worship, think of that in part as not just worship and not just community, but also mission. Yes, the church's corporate worship is mainly for Christians. There are a lot of verses that show us this. All right, again, 1 Peter 2.5, these are saved living stones built upon the cornerstone of Christ that are assembling together for a special experience of the presence of God. But Paul also encourages believers to come in to these Christian meetings like this one and observe. So 1 Corinthians 14 Verse 24, Paul talks about an unbeliever, an outsider entering, and here's the hope. He's convicted, he's called to account, there's conviction, not that he was directly called into account, but but by the preaching of God's word, there's conviction. His motives are exposed, the secrets of his heart, of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, Paul writes, He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He'll sense that this is real. He'll sense that this is truly spiritual. This isn't just a club, a religious club, but this is a meeting with the God who made me and the God who saves. Now, in context of 1 Corinthians 14, it's clear that Paul there is warning them, unbelievers won't understand tongues. He says they might understand prophecy or preaching, proclamation. They'll understand that. And so that's, that's the goal, that there is some kind of intelligible proclamation and worship going on. Not that there's sole focus on the unbelievers who come in. In fact, the very next verse says, let everything be done for edification, building up of the saints. Now, it's for the church with the church. It's primarily a meeting of the church. But why not do it in a way that unbelievers don't feel like they didn't get the secret code? You know? Don't use words. Maybe the application would be in our day. Don't use words that are terribly foreign to the world. Don't adopt a kind of Christian ease verbiage that is almost as hard to understand unbelievers as tongues would be. So hopefully we try to balance those two dynamics here on a Sunday morning. Let it be done for edification, for the building up of the saints. This is a meeting of the church. And yet, we want to be as direct and simple about what the gospel is and what we believe the Bible to be, so that when unbelievers come, they can at least get something of what we're saying, right? So invite them. Invite your friends on Sunday morning so they can see Christians worship. Maybe they can sense God is truly in this place. 
Increasingly so, I think unbelievers need multiple exposures to the gospel. Sometimes we think we've failed in a witnessing chance because this person heard the gospel and we didn't close the deal. We didn't wrap it up or something. I think they'll need to hear it most times from different angles, from different passages, addressing different things. I remember once I was talking with a friend. We had had maybe five or six different gospel conversations. And I thought, surely he's going to say, quit saying the same thing over and over. I got it. And guess what? It was the sixth one where he said, Wait a minute, are you telling me? And then he repeated back the gospel to me. But it took six times before he really got what I was saying. That I was saying this and not that. We need multiple exposures to the gospel. I certainly believe I did before I became a Christian. I think people today will probably need to see more than one Christian. And talk to more than one Christian. And they'll probably need to see something of what it's like on the inside. And a church service gives them something of what it's like on the inside. Especially as a preacher is addressing believers and the Christian life. And the struggles of sin and sanctification. And yet the comfort of the gospel that covers all of our sins. They're seeing something about the Christian life. They're seeing something of what it's like to actually be a Christian I think oftentimes God uses that. Let me talk about some layers of a missional lifestyle. It seems difficult to to get from here to there. There being people coming to faith. Or even just the gospel itself being communicated. So what are some typical Ways in which we get there. What's a typical progression? Well, let me give you four stages. Sometimes these don't all four happen. Praise God. Sometimes a friend you're talking to, loving on, witnesses the gospel in a way uh, you didn't expect. And it it leapfrogs further into this discussion than, than maybe I'll list here. But sometimes it takes these four things or more. Where, first, there's participation, rubbing shoulders, contact, whatever you'd call it. It's simply going to the same places as unbelievers. Not believing that Christians are called to a a bubble, living with other Christians, but are to go in the world and live in the world and care for the world. A second layer would be serving non-Christians. Or even sometimes serving with non-Christians. Perhaps you get behind a a cause in the city and you're right alongside some non-Christian friends. A third level would be sharing life, meals, conversations of the heart. And then a fourth would be the gospel. Or we could talk about the same kind of progression in terms of communication. It might move from chit-chat to life talks, where you say, I was at a funeral yesterday, the conversation goes on from there, maybe a life talk, and then moving to heart talks. Something of the heart would be something like, I was at a funeral yesterday, and I began to think, and then the heart comes out, heart talks, and then fourth being gospel talks. Now, I think these 
this progression, these levels of missional lifestyle or communication need to be in mind so that we don't think that the mundane is irrelevant. Instead, we should be purposeful about the mundane, probably doing nothing different than what you're already doing. You got sports? Great. You got a hobby? Great. Do what you love, and yet do this participation. Contact and shoulder rubbing in a purposeful way. It's an on-ramp of the mission. It's an on-ramp to the witness. So be purposeful about the mundane and where you have an open door to move to a more heart-focused conversation. Do so. A helpful book is entitled Total Church. Total Church. It says this. Evangelism is not an activity to be squeezed into our busy schedules. It becomes an intention that we carry with us throughout the day. Ordinary life becomes missional life if we have a gospel intentionality. Watching a film with friends or looking after a burdened mother's children can simultaneously be family time, leisure, and mission. That's the plan. Talk about people, the plan, and now we'll more quickly talk about three more P's. The third, the power for the mission. The power. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive power. Do you see that? Every Christian receives the Spirit's indwelling and the Spirit's empowering. Now, I know you feel, you feel inadequate and weak. To proclaim Christ in this world. To to move from a friendship to a gospel conversation. I know we feel inadequate about that. Preachers do too. It's easy to preach on a Sunday morning to even hundreds of people when they come and they invite your talking, right? You come, you, you at least you're seeming to look like you're interested in this. Maybe not. But... But you're here willfully, right? Not by force. And so it's easy to talk about the gospel to you. It's much harder to make a turn in a friendship conversation to get to Christ and to ask for a response. So what do we do? How shall we talk to our feelings of inadequacy? How do we respond to feeling so inadequate for this? Well, one, maybe it's by addressing it. Maybe you need to fight it. Maybe you've never read a book on how to talk about Christ. Maybe you've never taken a class, like I mentioned earlier, our ambassador class. Maybe you've never studied how to do this. Maybe you don't know places in the Bible where there's a good gospel nugget, a good summary of the gospel. Maybe you've never asked others what they do or sat down with someone you think does it well. Maybe, in a sense, you rightly feel inadequate, and you should just address it. Maybe it's because you haven't stirred your heart and your mind in a way that it just comes out. Have you noticed in reading the book of Acts that there's a whole lot of witnessing and very little rah-rah-rah about witnessing? There's very little talk in the church about, okay, guys, don't forget. Remember, Jesus told us we got to go out and talk. 
Remember, don't forget about the world. It's great meeting each other's needs here. Lord's Supper's great. Preaching's great. But don't forget, we got to go out and do it. No, we do that today. You don't see it in Acts. Why? Acts 4 says they couldn't help but speak the things which they had heard and seen. I think maybe part of the answer is that we personally and corporately as a church need to do better about stoking the fire of meditation of Christ and in his, his word, his gospel, enjoyment of Christ in the gospel. And maybe then it will pour out. When we feel inadequate, we have to remember that Jesus said we will receive power. Believe that God will give power. Did you notice in this verse it doesn't say, and you will feel powerful. It doesn't say you will be eloquent and cool and smooth. It doesn't say you will feel and be persuasive. It says you'll receive power. It doesn't say you'll feel this big burst of power before you're to witness. Maybe we've never felt witnessing power because we've never taken the first step and started to witness. Maybe then we would feel something supernatural taking place where, oh no, it's not perfect. Oh, you still feel stupid. But you did better than you know you really can do. You did better than nothing at all. And God gets credit for that, where he gives power for us to trust him and start talking. We should pray about all this as well. You feel inadequate? You find Paul praying for witness and asking others to pray for him about his witness. At the end of Ephesians, he he asks the Ephesians there that they would pray for Paul to be more courageous the end of Colossians, Paul asks them to pray that God would open doors to proclaim Christ in the world. And he also asks them to pray that when he gets these open doors, he would speak clearly. So he prays for three C's, if you want to write these down. He prays for courage, chances, and clarity. Courage, chances, and clarity. Paul had to pray for courage. Paul had to pray for clarity. Paul had to pray for chances. And he went so far as to ask others to pray for him with these three C's in mind. We should follow his model and pray for these three C's. And we should ask others to pray for us. Asking others to pray for us about our need for courage our open eyes for chances, and clarity when we speak, it it makes us somewhat accountable, right? They may actually say, hey, I've been praying for that. How's it going? Fourth, let's talk about the point of the mission. The point of this mission in Acts 1-8 is not not winning a cultural war. It's not arrogantly showing others that they're wrong and we're right. It's not feeling better about ourselves when we get others to join our side. The point of the mission, may we never forget, is rescue. Rescue from sin and judgment. The point of the mission is redemption. Jesus is buying back what is his 
He is freeing us unto himself. The point of the mission is reconciliation, taking those who are opposed to God and his ways and putting them aright with him. It's a realization of God's goodness and glory. Nothing less than the putting of things to right is at stake in the mission of the church as it represents Christ to the world. I know the world calls this proselytizing, and they don't like it. They think it's arrogant and even controlling. But we should say, no, it's not. You see, we believe this to be an announcement of reality, and that's why it has to be public. The word gospel in the New Testament It's a Greek word, and hence it's used in the Roman world about the same time. So you can find something called the Gospel of Caesar Augustus. It means the announcement of Caesar Augustus, the good news announcement of Caesar Augustus. It had nothing to do with religion. But it was an announcement of a life-changing, world-altering event, either his birth or him ascending to the throne. It's an announcement of reality, announcement of something good. It's an announcement that affects everyone. It not only offers hope and joy, but also demands getting in line with it. It's coming. Get in line with it. Christians are simply... We believe announcing what is reality, what's happened. We're all advocates for something, aren't we? We're all, in a sense, lobbyists for our own things. For this political party, or this certain food, or this exercise, or that budget plan, or climate change, or recycling, or... Your sport, your team, maybe you're a soccer fan, you got a chip on your shoulder because they don't play enough soccer on ESPN. You try to tell people the, the, the nobility and worth of a one nothing game, right? <laughs> Ladies, you have no idea why that's a joke, and guys in here do, I think. Uh, some people don't like soccer, others are passionate about it. We're lobbyists, even advertising is advocating something, right? It's getting others to change their mind about something. It's persuasion. And no one's shocked. No one's offended by any of this, except when it comes to religion. So non-Christian, when you say to a Christian, you know, you have to stop shoving your worldview down everyone else's throats, I'd suggest that that's ironic. Really, what you're doing, if you think about it, is putting your own worldview upon others. A Christian worldview says that everyone, everyone should acknowledge that Christ has come. His coming changes everything, and he calls those who he's reconciled to himself to tell the rest of his creation because he's the Lord of all creation. That's our worldview. And your worldview says that everyone should mind their own business about religion. Whose worldview gets to win out? How about instead we just talk about our worldviews? And isn't that the most loving thing to not only inform but try to persuade if we think we're right? We aren't bothered by a doctor's persuasion of what's going on in our body, 
tries to convince us to quit smoking or something. We're not bothered by that. We're not offended. We know it's his job. You say, if you're not a Christian, well, my doctor really knows. And I would say, we Christians sometimes feel no less convinced about the reality of Christ than your doctor does about your diagnosis. A people, a plan, power, a significant point, and then lastly, there's precedent. There's precedent for this mission. The precedent is this. God has been on mission from the beginning of time. This is his mission, and he's already won. Christ has come. He's victorious. It was a visible, public display over his enemies. It looked like it was defeat. But he rose on the third day to testify that he's already, in principle, one. And he, amazingly, has has chosen us not only to join him in his family and in fellowship with him, but to join him in his mission. To join him in his plan to put things aright. And so we should know that he always goes before us, Christians. He is already doing something you, you can't imagine. He's already working in hearts and minds and those around you. Pray for that. Pray so that you're in cooperation with it. And you know what? He does it even when you're not praying. You can talk, knowing that he's the God of hearts. Only he can change hearts. We plant Another might water, but God gives the increase, 1 Corinthians 3 says. He gives the new birth. He draws them in as he did in our own lives. So what comfort we can go and proclaim. And they may say, shut up. They may punch you in the lip. And they may be changed. They may move from darkness to light. But the results are not up to us. They're up to him who, who can shine light into dark hearts. And, and get this, he shines light into dark hearts. The thing he shines it on, the gospel you and I proclaim and represent in the world. What great and glorious comfort and privilege we have.